we're continuing our study on Hebrews, Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. And this is teaching number 22, which is the priest that makes you perfect. And it's going to come out of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. But before we get to those verses, one of the things that's really important to understand is the book of Hebrews does not exist in isolation, and I think we've talked about this in, in other studies, but it exists within the context of the whole of Scripture. And so to truly understand this letter written to the Hebrew people, we really have to, to become Jewish. We've got to have a Jewish mindset back in AD 65. How did they think? What was life like for them? How did they understand Scripture? And then as we think as if we're in Judaism and we're being encouraged to come to Jesus, which is what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to get the Jewish people to do, we as believers here in the 21st century can have a better understanding of this book of Hebrews. And it's important to remember that this letter to the Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people. That's why it's entitled Hebrews, Jewish people. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 talks about the audience that's being written to. We want to have that audience's perspective and the perspective of the writer as he relates to the audience and he's teaching Hebrews. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, understood that God was going to set up a kingdom on earth, and he's going to do that. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's a kingdom of righteousness Ultimately, it will go into the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. So that's God's end goal. God is moving toward the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where there's no more hurt and pain and heartache and tears and mourning and crying. It's a new earth. It's the earth that we live on today, but it's the old ways upon this earth will be gone and the new covenant life will be fully in effect in the new earth. And so in Jewish scriptures, this promise of a new covenant was coming. The promise of a new earth was coming. The promise of a kingdom was coming. The promise of a king was coming, the Messiah, the Christ. We find out about that in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, this coming kingdom of righteousness, this kingdom of peace. Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 talks about this coming king and this coming kingdom. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Micah 5, 2 through 4 talks about the Messiah, the Christ that's coming to establish this kingdom of peace and this kingdom of righteousness will be born in Bethlehem. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, saying that she's going to give birth to the Messiah who is going to establish God's kingdom on earth where righteousness reigns and peace flows. What the Jewish people understood was that to be a part of Messiah's kingdom, to live in Messiah's kingdom, to live in the kingdom of Christ, to live on the new earth, was that righteousness is required, that no unrighteous person can live in the righteous kingdom of the Messiah. As you read through the book of Psalms, as you read through the book of Proverbs, the word righteous or righteousness is mentioned in, let's say, for example, the book of Psalms, righteous and righteousness about 600 times combined, Psalms and Proverbs. When you read through Psalms and Proverbs and the word righteous or righteousness appears, typically it's in contrast with the word wicked. 
And what we discover in Jewish scripture, Psalms and Proverbs and other scriptures, is that only the righteous will live in the coming kingdom of God. The wicked will be cut off. The wicked will perish in judgment. That's why in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life in God's kingdom. And so the wicked will perish, the ungodly will perish, but the righteous ones will live in the kingdom. The ungodly, the wicked, the unrighteous will be removed from this earth in what's called the wrath of God. Paul writes about this in Romans. He writes about it in Ephesians. Peter writes about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, this coming wrath of God where God removes all sin and sinners from the earth, leaving only the righteous. So the Jewish people understood that. Only the righteous will remain to live on the new earth. The unrighteous will be removed from this earth in destruction. They will perish, Scripture says, and only the righteous will be left. So when we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and Jesus makes this statement, He says, unless you are, that's the people of Israel that he's speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's a huge statement for Jesus to make to the Jewish people during this time. Because the people watch the Pharisees every single day strive to live according to the Ten Commandments. The standard of righteousness for the Jewish people was the Ten Commandments. So to be righteous meant to live according to the Ten Commandments. And if somebody could live according to the Ten Commandments, then they could obtain the righteousness, attain the righteousness necessary to live in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees' righteousness, it says, unless you are, he's talking to the people of Israel, who understood it takes righteousness to live in the kingdom of God, this coming kingdom that Messiah is going to establish, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, that had to be alarming for the people of Israel because they knew that they weren't as righteous as the Pharisees. The normal, average Jewish person's every waking moment wasn't obedience to the Ten Commandments so they could have the righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. But that was how a Pharisee thought. The Pharisee's goal was to enter the kingdom by obtaining the righteousness through obedience to the law, righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom. Their every waking moment was how can I obey the law and how can I keep from breaking the law so that I can obtain the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness goes beyond that of the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now, they had an external righteousness. It was a righteousness that you could look at, you could see. Oh, look at the Pharisees. They're they're moral people. But internally, they were not righteous at all. And that's what Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 23, 25 through 28. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. That's the external righteousness. Oh, look how moral the Pharisees are externally, people would say. 
Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So Jesus is pointing out that internally the Pharisees are unrighteous, which would disqualify them to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26 of Matthew 23, blind Pharisee, blind to what? Blind to their sinfulness. They could not see that they were unrighteous inwardly because they were so concentrating on external righteousness that they couldn't see that they were internally unrighteous, being disqualified for the kingdom of God. Blind Pharisee first cleaned the inside of the cup, that's become righteous internally, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. And Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. And that's the Pharisees. Externally, people would look at the Pharisees and they would say, those are really righteous people. I mean, they're moral people. They're seeking to obey the Ten Commandments with every step they take and every breath that they take. Every waking moment, they're, they're seeking to be moral people. And the people of Israel would look at the Pharisees and they would say, wow, these are very moral people. If anybody is going to be righteous enough to enter the kingdom of God, it has to be the Pharisees. They're really righteous. So for Jesus to say to the average Jewish person, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, goes from being external to being internal, then you will not enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Messiah, the righteous kingdom of the Messiah. And then verse 28 of Matthew 23, Jesus says, In the same way on the outside to the Pharisees, you appear to people as righteous. And that's what we've been, we've been talking about. It's when the average Jewish person would look at the Pharisees, they would appear to be righteous because they seem to be very moral people externally. Jesus said, you appear to be righteous people, and you appear to people as being righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, what we discover in the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs and other parts of Jewish scripture is that the wicked will be removed from the earth, and only the righteous will remain. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I know you think you are righteous, but you're actually wicked. Internally, you're unrighteous, you're immoral, you're ungodly internally. Therefore, you're going to go into the wrath of God, you're going to be removed from the earth, and you're not going to be a part of God's kingdom when he sets it up on earth with Messiah as the king. Now, the question would have been to the Jewish people as they're hearing Jesus say to the Pharisees or to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount, the standard of righteousness required, which no one can measure up to. The Jewish people would have asked, well, how righteous do we have to be? I mean, how far in righteousness do we have to go? In Matthew chapter 5, 48, Jesus answers this question. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's talking about perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect kindness, internally and externally, 
perfectly righteous in my thoughts and my desires and my attitudes and my actions with zero room for failure, that the only people who will qualify for entrance into Messiah's righteous kingdom, and he's the righteous king, we looked at that last week, who's going to establish this righteous kingdom, you have to be perfectly righteous. Now, this leads us to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, which is what we're studying tonight. We're studying Jesus, the priest that makes you perfect. Because if all of us are honest, none of us possess the righteousness to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved from the wrath to come, because only the righteous will be saved from the wrath to come. Only the righteous will enter and live on the new earth, the kingdom of God. We would all admit, apart from Christ, I have no righteousness. Apart from Christ, I don't qualify for entrance into the, to the kingdom of God, into the new earth where righteousness dwells. I qualify for the wrath to come. And Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 2, as well as in the book of Romans. So Hebrews 7.11 says, if perfection, now what is perfection? It's full and final forgiveness for all sins. It's complete cleansing from all sins. It's internal and eternal forgiveness for sins. It's internal and eternal cleansing from sins. It's permanent purification of sins, resulting in an innocent and righteous standing before God, enabling a person to live in Messiah's kingdom. Why is the writer of Hebrews even writing about perfection? Because the Jewish people begin to understand to live in Messiah's kingdom, you have to be perfect. You have to be cleansed from all sins. You have to be purified from all sins. And so they were seeking perfection through the law of Moses, whether it was obedience to the law or being forgiven and cleansed by the priest under the law. So the writer of Hebrews says, if perfection could have been attained. Now, the word attain means self-effort, right? I'm seeking to attain perfection through my own moral performance, through my own religious practices. Through my moral performance and my religious practices, I can attain the righteousness necessary and needed to live in the coming kingdom of God. So if perfection could have been attained, this righteous standing through the works of the law, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood were all the priests from the family of Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi, that if by participating in the law of Moses, if by fulfilling the requirements of the law of Moses, the duties of the law of Moses, the demands of the law of Moses, and the priest managed the law, they were the law managers. So perfection, complete righteousness internally and externally, could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood or doing what the priests were saying to do. And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. The priesthood was established when God gave Moses the law. That's in Exodus 28 through 29. So perfection could have been attained a perfect righteousness could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, 
and not in the order of Aaron. So there's a question. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 is a question that the writer of Hebrews is putting before the Jewish reader. Now, the Jewish reader understood to live in Messiah's kingdom, you have to be perfectly righteous. They were seeking righteousness through the law of Moses. But God made a promise in Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm talking about the coming Messiah who's going to be a king and going to be a priest. That's why it talks about this coming Messiah coming in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. We looked at that last week as well. He was a king, the king of Salem. He was also a priest. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Salem, which is what he was the king over, Salem means the king of peace. So the Christ would be the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and he he would be a righteous king who ushered in a righteous and peaceful kingdom. We looked at that last week as well. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, and the Jewish people were looking for the coming Messiah, they were looking for the coming Christ, they had rejected Jesus as the Christ. You can read about that in John chapter 19. He asked the question, if the Levitical priesthood, if the law of Moses could bring about the righteousness necessary to enter Messiah's kingdom, then why was there still another priest to come? That's Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, a promise. One in the order of Melchizedek, that the Christ when he comes would be a king and a priest, not in the order of Aaron. So he's trying to get them to think, why would God make a promise for the Christ to be a priest, not in the order of Aaron, not not from the tribe of Levi, not in the family line of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. It's kind of like what Paul does in Galatians when he talks about if righteousness could be gained through the law, then why did Jesus die? It's that same thought. It's if, if righteousness could be gained through the law under the Levitical priesthood in the order of Aaron, then why would another priest need to come in the order of Melchizedek? Why would God promise for another priest to come? Let's move on to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Now, what does he mean by this? Is God promised that another priest would come in the order of Melchizedek, that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a king and he would be a priest? Now, a priest represents the people to God. He mediates between God and people. But God said another priest is going to come. That's much different than the priest of the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest to come in the order of Melchizedek. His thought here for when the priesthood is changed, that that this priest coming in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110.4, is not in the order of Aaron. So that means that that something's going to change. The prophecy of Psalm 10 verse 4 means if another priest is coming in the order of Melchizedek, then What's going to happen to the priesthood of the law of Moses? It's going to change. When this priest of Psalm 110, chapter 4, comes and is identified, then the law system's gone. The Mosaic law is gone. The the Levitical priesthood is gone. 
the, this new priest in the order of Melchizedek has come. And he's in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. He's not going to manage the law of Moses because he's not from the family tribe of Levi or Aaron. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, of the order of Melchizedek. Let's keep reading. Hebrews 7, 13 through 19. He, that's the one coming in the order of Melchizedek, who is Jesus. He of whom these things are said. So we have to ask the question, what things? Well, he's referring back, the writer of Hebrews is referring back to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. He's referring to Hebrews 6, 16 through 20. They all talk about Melchizedek. He's referring to Psalm 110:4. He, the one coming in the order of Melchizedek, who is Jesus, he of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe. Jesus didn't belong to the tribe of Levi. Jacob had 12 sons. Levi was one of the sons. Judah was one of the sons. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah. No one in the tribe of Judah could manage the law of Moses, the sacrifices, the, all that happened under the law that we read about in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. They all had to come from the family tree of Aaron, who came from Levi. You can also read about the Messiah, the Christ, the King to come, would come from the tribe of Judah. That's Genesis 49:10. So he, the one coming in the order of Melchizedek, of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe, being the tribe of Judah, has ever served at the altar. Now, the altar here is referring to, you can go back and start reading around Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. You can read into the book of Leviticus, and you'll see that this word altar is used about 45 times in Exodus and Leviticus. And it's the altar that was outside of the holy place and the most holy place. It's where the animals were sacrificed. No one could serve at the altar. No one could sacrifice the animals and take the blood of the animal into the holy place and once a year into the most holy place unless that person was from the tribe of, of Levi and then specifically from the family tree of Aaron and they were appointed to be priests who would manage the law of Moses. You can read about that in Exodus and Leviticus. So no one from the tribe of Judah could serve at the altar. So this priest coming in, in the order of Melchizedek was not going to manage the law of Moses. He was not going to oversee the law of Moses because there was a change in the priesthood going from the order of Aaron to the order of Melchizedek. The prophecy of Psalm 110 had been fulfilled in Jesus. If the priesthood changed, then the law had to change as well, because no one serving from the tribe of Judah, which is where Jesus was from, could manage the law system, could sacrifice animals, and they had to be from the tribe of Aaron or the tribe of Levi, the family tree of Aaron. All right, let's go to, uh, to verse 14 of Hebrews 7. And the writer of Hebrews, again, is writing to Jewish people who understood the book of Leviticus. They understood the book of Exodus. They knew exactly what this writer was referring to. And that's why I encourage people all the time. 
if a person's going to understand the book of Hebrews, they have to study the book of, of Leviticus. They have to study Exodus starting in about chapter 19 through Leviticus, because that's where this book finds its roots. And I've got to have a Jewish mindset. I've got to understand the law system, the sacrificial system, the temple and the sacrifices, because that's where the writer of Hebrews is writing from. Verse 14, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus descended from Judah, not Levi. And in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. In regard to that tribe, Judah, Moses said nothing about priest. People from the tribe of Judah couldn't manage the law system. They had to be from the tribe of Aaron. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So there's a change in the law going on. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. And what we have said, now the we's referring to the writer of Hebrews and those who possibly are writing this letter with him, and what we have said, said where? In Hebrews chapter 5, 1 through 10, in Hebrews chapter 6, 16 through 20, and Hebrews chapter 7, 1 through 12, what we've said about this one coming in the order of Melchizedek. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. And he's saying that's Jesus. Jesus is the one of Psalm 110, 4, verse 16 of Hebrews 7. It is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, that's the earthly family tree of Levi and Aaron. People could function as priests if they were from the tribe of Levi and the family tree of Aaron. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry or his family tree or his family line, but one who has become a priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's a life without beginning or life without end. He's going back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3 there, that the one coming in the order of Melchizedek would have no beginning or end. He would have an indestructible life. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has no beginning. Daniel talks about that, the ancient of days without beginning or end. So, on the basis of the power of an instructable life, this one of Psalm 110 forward would come, and now the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, chapter 4. You, the Messiah, the Christ, who he's talking about in Psalm 110, the coming King, coming Messiah, the Christ, you are a priest forever, meaning without beginning or end, an indestructible life, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110.4 tells us that the Messiah, the Christ, would have no beginning or end. He would be like Melchizedek. He would have an indestructible life. And ultimately that one of Psalm 110.4 is Jesus. So now we're moving down into verse 18 of Hebrews 7. The former regulation, that's the Old Testament of law, which went into effect in Exodus 24, verse 8, when the animal was sacrificed. That's when the Old Testament starts. That's why we say the Old Testament is not about books, it's about blood. 
the Old Testament started in Exodus 24:8. When an animal was sacrificed, the Old Testament went into effect until Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. That's when the New Testament, or a new way of relating to God, was established. So the former regulation, that's the book of Leviticus, that's the book of Deuteronomy, that's Exodus 19 all the way through Leviticus, the law is, is gone, the law is set aside. The former regulation is set aside. Now that this Messiah has come, the Christ has come in the order of Melchizedek, this one who wasn't in the family line of Aaron or Levi, but the order of Melchizedek. And now that he's come, the former regulation is set aside. It's been removed. It's been replaced. It's the change that's referred to in Hebrews 7.12. If there's a new priest to come, then there's got to be a change in the law. And the word change there means to be removed and to be replaced. So when this priest to come in the order of Melchizedek, when he comes, he's going to remove the law system and he's going to replace it with something better. And we know what that better is. It's the new covenant. It's what he says, the writer says in verse 18 and 19 here, the former regulation of law is set aside, it's removed and it's been replaced. It's the change being referred to in Hebrews 7, 12. The former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless Weak and useless to do what? Look what verse 19 says. For the law made nothing perfect. Remember what Jesus said. If you're going to enter Messiah's kingdom, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, if you're going to escape the wrath to come and to experience the righteous kingdom to come, you have to be perfect. Your righteousness has to go beyond that of the Pharisees who were seeking righteousness through the law. You've got to go beyond that of the Pharisees from external righteousness to internal righteousness, and the law cannot cleanse a person internally. It cannot completely forgive sins and make a person clean. We'll see that momentarily. So why did God set aside the law? Because the law is weak and the law is useless because it cannot make a person perfect to qualify them for entrance into Messiah's kingdom, into the kingdom of God, to live on the new earth. So the former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced. That's the new covenant of grace. That's the New Testament of grace. That's the blood of Christ. It's the cross of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin forgives all sin, makes us perfectly righteous before God because he took our sinfulness at the cross, our internal sinfulness, our external sinfulness, and Jesus took it at the cross and he offers us his righteousness as a free gift that we receive by faith. And that's what Paul writes about in Romans. So the former regulation of law is set aside because it is weak and useless to make a person perfect or righteous before God. And a better hope, the new covenant of grace, is introduced to the human race, replacing the law by which we draw near to God. Now, we see the heart of God here. God's heart is that we be close to Him. God's heart is that we enjoy a loving, close relationship with Him, but the law could never 
enable a person to have a close relationship with God because the law couldn't make anything perfect. It couldn't make us righteous. And God is a righteous, holy God, fully loving. But sin cannot enter his presence. And the law reveals that we're all sinners, but it can't make us clean. So God introduced the New Testament. He introduced the New Covenant. And again, we're not talking about books when we talk about the New Testament. We're talking about the blood of Christ. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That's the goal. That's the heart of God is for you and I to enjoy a close, loving relationship with him where we are confident that we're fully forgiven of all sins, completely cleansed from all sins, permanently purified from all sins. Therefore, we are perfect. That was the heart of God, and that's the work of God for us in Christ. Now, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, 14, 17, and verse 18 explain this. Gives us some more insight. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. All the sacrifices are only shadows of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. The work of the priest were shadows of the final work of Jesus, the, the priest to come in the order of Melchizedek. So everything in the law ultimately pointed to the New Testament. It ultimately pointed to the new covenant. It ultimately pointed to the work of Christ and the person of Christ. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Now, the good things is the new covenant of grace. It's all that Jesus accomplished for us when he shed his blood on the cross. The writer of Hebrews writes about that in chapter 9 and in the rest of chapter 10 of Hebrews. He explains that. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year. So the law was in effect for about 1,500 years until Christ came. Year after year after year, day after day after day, the priests were sacrificing animals for forgiveness. Go back sometimes and read the book of Leviticus and see all the different sacrifices that had to take place. Day after day after day, year after year after year, all these sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, for cleansing from sins. By the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, this is verse 1 of Hebrews 10, could not make perfect those who drew near to worship God. The law cannot make a person perfect. He's going to explain, well, what's the word perfect mean here? The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship God. So there are those people who are wanting to have a close relationship with God, but the law would not enable them to do so. Verse 2, otherwise, if the law could have made a person perfect so that they could draw near to God, otherwise would they have not stopped being offered? So the logic of the writer is this. If the law can make somebody perfectly clean and perfectly forgiven, then why were the sacrifices being made year after year after year and day after day after day and month after month after month and week after week? His reasoning is is they couldn't. If they could, then it wouldn't have to be repeated. Maybe this will help. 
if washing clothes in a washing machine could make our clothes completely clean forever, then why do we have to keep washing them over and over again? Why, why do we have to keep washing our cars over and over and over again if washing the car could make it perfect? Because it just gets dirty again and it needs to be clean again. And that's life under the law. If washing dishes could make them perfectly clean forever, then why do we have to keep washing them every day? Well, because they keep getting dirty every day. So the law could not make a person permanently clean before God and perfectly clean before God. Under the law, they sin, they get dirty again, they get distant from God. They have to go back through all the religious requirements of the law to get clean again. But the moment they sin again, they get dirty again and they're distant from God and they're dirty before God again. You know, life under the law. Otherwise, if the law can make someone perfectly clean and righteous and forgiven before God forever, eternally, otherwise, would they, these sacrifices under the law, not have stopped being offered by the priest? For the worshipers, those desiring to be close to God, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. That's what perfect means. What does perfection mean? It means that we've been cleansed of all sins once for all time. That because of the blood of Jesus, one time, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're cleansed from all sin for all time. That when we sin again, we don't get dirty before God and we're not distant from God because the blood of Jesus is permanent for us. It permanently cleanses us from sin. It permanently forgives sins and it permanently enables us to be close to God. The law could not do that. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Otherwise, would they, the sacrifices under the law, not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all under the law if the sacrifices of the priests could have made them clean and not guilty for their sins. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. See, we're innocent before God because of the blood of Jesus. He took our guilt on the cross, and now he gives us his innocence, his righteousness. Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 10. But those sacrifices under the law are an annual reminder of sins. Annual reminder. Every time an animal was sacrificed, what it was telling the people was, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. Now, the beauty of the cross is this. The cross is a daily reminder that we're not guilty. The law, under the old covenant of law, is a continual reminder to the people of their guilt. But this new covenant of grace, the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross, is a daily reminder of our innocence before God. It's a daily reminder of our righteousness before God. It's a daily reminder of our forgiveness from God, complete, full, forever, final. Therefore, we don't have to live in guilt. We don't have to live in fear. We can live in grace and we live in peace, which is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verse 17 where we are not slaves to the law and slaves to fear and slaves to guilt. 
We've been completely forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're innocent before God. So the blood of Christ is a daily reminder of our innocence before God, our righteousness and our forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10, 4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Just real quick, that's what it means back in Hebrews chapter 6, and we looked at this a while back. It is impossible to be brought back to repentance. Within the book of Hebrews, this is what that's referring to. He's telling the Jewish people, repentance to the Jewish person meant being clean from sin and being forgiven under the law of Moses. So the writer is saying to them in Hebrews 6, they're rejecting the work of Jesus on the cross. They're continuing to go to the, to the law of Moses and to the priest in Jerusalem during this time, sacrificing animals for forgiveness and cleansing from sins. And the writer of Hebrews is saying it's impossible to be brought back to repentance, to be forgiven under the law, to be righteous under the law, to be cleansed from all sins under the law, because the law has been done away with. That's why it's impossible to be brought back to repentance, because the law had become obsolete. The old covenant was now obsolete. It had been replaced by the new covenant, and they're wanting to go to the old covenant to get forgiveness which was an impossibility. That's what Hebrews 6 is about, because it was now obsolete. This new priest had established a new covenant of grace. So verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but the blood of Jesus took away our sins. That's the New Testament. Our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to get the Jewish people to come away from the old covenant of law and seeking daily forgiveness and daily cleansing from sins and come to the person of Christ, to the work of Christ, to this priest who was prophesied in Psalm 110, chapter 4, to come in the order of Melchizedek, who was going to bring a new way of relating to God that was different than the priest who were managing the law of Moses. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, these daily sacrifices under the law of Moses. Impossible. Verse 5, therefore, when Christ came into the world, when Messiah came, when, when the one of Psalm 110, verse 4, when the one coming in the order of Melchizedek, the Christ, the Messiah, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. He's going back into the book of Leviticus. Then I, the Messiah, the Christ, said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, the Jewish scriptures. Jewish scriptures foretell of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Remember, In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll, meaning he, he read from the Jewish scriptures, specifically Isaiah chapter 61 there. So the scroll is the Jewish scriptures, the Messiah. Then I, the Messiah, said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And that's a quote from Psalm chapter 46 through 8. It's a quote from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the translation of the Jewish scriptures from the Hebrew language into the Greek language. So the writer of Hebrews quotes from the Septuagint mostly in the book of Hebrews because he's probably writing to Greek-speaking Jews. 
So he's going to be quoting from the Septuagint. So sacrifice and offerings under the law of Moses you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings in the book of Leviticus and sin offerings in the book of Leviticus, you were not pleased. Then I, the Messiah, the Christ said, here I am, as it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now, what's this will? Verse 8. First, he said, this is the writer of Hebrews, verse 8. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. God was not pleased, nor did he desire all these sacrifices going on in the book of Leviticus though they were offered in accordance with the law. Verse 9 of Hebrews 10, Then he said, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. Then the Christ said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. Now, what was the will of God that the Christ came to do, the Messiah came to do, Jesus? What was the will of God that Jesus came to do? He sets aside the first, that's the Old Testament of law with the sacrifices and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The priest to come in the order of Melchizedek was coming to establish the new covenant of grace. That's what the second is. The old covenant of law would be removed and be replaced by the new covenant of grace that the Messiah was going to establish. The Messiah, the Christ of Psalm 110. Here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, that's the old covenant of law, to establish the second, that's the New Testament of grace. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will of God for Jesus was to establish the New Testament of grace. And again, when we talk about New Testament, we're not talking about books. We're talking about blood. We're talking about the cross. Matthew 1 through most of 26 into 27 is Old Testament scripture. The priests were sacrificing animals. The whole sacrificial system was in place until the cross of Jesus. So we can't see Matthew and Mark and Luke as New Testament books. They're not. The New Testament went into effect when Jesus died on the cross. What was the will of God? that we would be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Through Jesus, we're made righteous. He took all of our unrighteousness at the cross, and as a gift of grace, he offers us his righteousness. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing in real time here. AD 65, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. The altar was outside of the most holy place and the holy place. Sacrifices were going on every single day, again and again and again. Animals were being sacrificed. The reader of, of the book of Hebrews is being challenged by the writer to understand that all the things they're seeing going on at the temple in Jerusalem before its destruction in AD 70 can't take away sins. It can't make a person perfect. It can't cleanse from sins. That, that whole system that they're watching every day is obsolete. It's been brought to an end. It's been removed and it's been replaced by this priest coming in the order of Melchizedek. 
Jesus is that priest. Day after day, this is verse 11, Hebrews 10, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. You could stand outside the temple in Jerusalem and watch the priests do what they did during the writing of Hebrews. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices day after day, which can never take away sins. It only covered sins for a short amount of time, but it couldn't take away sins for a lifetime. The blood of Jesus doesn't cover sins. The blood of Jesus has taken our sins and our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Our sins were taken to the cross. John writes about this and talks about this. He says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus, the propitiation of our sins. He makes the full and the final and the eternal payment for the sins of all people, and by faith we receive what he's done. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, in comparison and contrast to the millions of sacrifices for sin starting back in Exodus, one sacrifice compared to the millions under the law of Moses. But when this priest, Jesus, the priest to come in the order of Melchizedek, but when this priest had offered for all time, for all people, for all sins, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, of God. The earthly priest had to keep seeking forgiveness for the people Whereas Jesus, this priest in the order of Melchizedek, secured eternal forgiveness for everybody. And by faith, we receive this forgiveness. That's why Jesus told Paul in Acts 26, 15 through 18, to go proclaim the forgiveness of sins that is received by faith. We don't ask God for forgiveness. In this New Testament of grace, God is asking us to receive by faith the forgiveness that he's freely provided for us in Christ. And when we receive that forgiveness, we experience eternal forgiveness. So when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down, meaning his work was full, final, and finished, and forever. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool when he establishes his righteous kingdom on earth. For by one sacrifice, he... This priest, this priest in the order of Melchizedek, this one to come and by his sacrifice for sins, for by one sacrifice, this priest, and he's telling the Jewish people, he said, listen, you guys are still going to the earthly temple in Jerusalem to be forgiven over and over and over again and cleansed over and over and over again for your sins, but that can't take away your sins. Jesus is the priest to come in the order of Melchizedek. He's the one of Psalm 110.4. And it's his one-time sacrifice for sins. And he sat down. He, he says, if you'll come to faith in Christ, this getting daily forgiveness for the rest of your life will come to an end because you can rest in the fact that you're fully and forever forgiven because of the Messiah, the Christ Jesus. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let's go to verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he, this priest, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, we want to stop there. I'm reading out of the NIV. The word being is not in the original manuscripts. Many translations don't have the word being because it's not in the original manuscripts. We're not being made holy. 
We are made holy. That's what this is. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are, you can mark out the word being, it's not in the original manuscripts. For by one sacrifice, this priest Jesus has made perfect. What does that mean? We looked at it earlier in chapter 10. Completely cleansed from sins, fully forgiven from sins, innocent before God, righteous before God, perfect for how long? Forever. Remember, under the law, every time they sinned, they got dirty and distant from God again. That can never happen to a believer in the new covenant because we're perfect forever. We're, we're close to God forever. We're clean before God forever. That's why you can't be out of fellowship with God, which is taught by so many Christian ministries and churches. That just is not a biblical teaching. You've been made perfect forever through faith in Jesus. You've been made holy forever, clean forever through faith in Jesus. For by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Jesus has made perfect forever, completely cleansed of sins, fully forgiven for sins, permanently purified for sins forever. Those who are made holy. The word being is not in the original manuscripts. Some of the translations that omit the word being, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the American Standard Version, the Literal Standard Version, the Net Bible, Young's Literal Translation, none have the word being in it because it's not in the manuscripts. All right, real quick, verses 10 and 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. Then he adds, as the Holy Spirit adds when he's speaking about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 through 34. Then he adds in Jeremiah 31, 34, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's what it means to be perfect before God. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. What he's telling the Jewish people in AD 65 is this. You guys are watching the priest every single day sacrifice animals for sins. That's unnecessary. Because the priest of Psalm 10, verse 4, the one coming in the order of Melchizedek, has come, and he's brought in the new covenant of grace. And his one-time sacrifice has done forever what these sacrifices by these priests could never do. Fully forgive sins, completely cleanse from sins for all time. So what the priests are doing at the temple in Jerusalem is no longer necessary. Stop taking your animals to the priest. Stop taking your doves and your pigeon and, and, and whatever was called for in Leviticus. It's done. It's finished. It's over. God wasn't pleased with any of that anyway, and he's pleased with what Christ did for you on the cross. Come to faith in Jesus. That's not only true for those in AD 65. It's true for you and I today. We are clean. We are righteous in Christ. We are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Faith receives what Jesus has done. We don't have to beg for forgiveness. We don't ask for forgiveness. We don't seek forgiveness. We are forgiven people because we're New Covenant or New Testament people. Let's finish with this. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. That's the city of the New Covenant. To the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth in Revelation 21. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the assembly, the church, or to the assembly of the firstborn, Jesus, the firstborn, the, the leader of the church is what that means, whose names are written in heaven. You in this new covenant of grace, the city of the living God, the new covenant city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, Paul writes about that in Galatians chapter four. You've come to God in this new covenant, this joyful assembly, 
You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Internal righteousness. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and says, oh, you're the cup, you're making yourself all clean on the outside, inside you're filthy. The blood of Christ cleanses us internally from sins. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This priest, this priest in the order of Melchizedek has made you perfect has made you internally perfectly righteous. I know you don't feel that. I know that. I know that. But that's the truth. You have been made perfectly righteous internally. That's who you are. And how did that happen? Verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's what you've come to. That's the covenant God relates to people by these days. And to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, that's how we're made righteous. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, the blood of Abel spoke about Cain, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. The blood of Jesus speaks about you and me. You're innocent, you're innocent, you're innocent. You're righteous internally. You're, you're righteous. You're forgiven. You're clean. That's what the blood of Jesus says. So Jesus is the priest that makes you perfect forever. You're perfectly forgiven of all sins. You're perfectly cleansed from all sins. You no longer have to carry around guilt. You're innocent before God. You're clean before God. You're righteous before God. You are perfect before God because of Jesus and what he's done. And now you and I can enjoy a loving, close relationship with God because that's the heart of God, where we draw close to him in a loving relationship, confident that we're clean before him and we're righteous and we're forgiven by him. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.